Okay, we continue in the book of Romans. Uh, We're only on our second sermon in the book of Romans as we continue looking at the introduction that Paul is giving to the church at Rome. So this is the second part of his introduction uh, in his letter to the church. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but this thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. It's been said that you can divide all of humanity into two groups of people, dog people and not dog people. I uh, probably fit in the not dog person category, but I think I've shifted over to the dog person category because to marry my wife is to become a dog person. For uh, 30 years, I think we've had a dog. And, uh, you know, whether you love dogs or not, you have to admit they're amazing creatures. Uh, And one of the amazing things about dogs is their ability to find their way home. Uh, I saw this story about a dog uh, that uh, his owner, they were uh, in Winchester, Virginia, and moved to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And when the owner got there, he discovered he didn't realize that he, he couldn't have pets where he was living. And so he went ahead and and temporarily rehomed his dog with his father back in Winchester. Well, a couple days later, this dog disappears from Winchester, Virginia. And months and months later, lo and behold, the dog shows up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The dog walked 500 miles to get back to where it came from. How does a dog have the ability to do that. I mean, scent will only take you so far, right? They actually did a study on this. They took multiple uh, breeds of dogs um, and they put them out in the woods with their owner and and they had a, a, a prey or something come by that would make the dogs run out and go chase something. And uh, when the dog was somewhat far away and they... Uh, one, and the dog wanted to come home, they, they watched how the dogs came home. And 60% of the time, the way the dogs came home is they simply did by smell. They retraced their steps by smell. But 30% of the time, what the dogs would do is they would run in a north-south orientation back and forth about 60 feet a couple of times 
And then they would find their way home back to their owner by a different route, not the route they came from. And what they concluded is that dogs, to some extent, have the ability to sense magnetic fields, much like uh, uh, other migratory animals like pigeons and so forth, that they are in touch with a, a deeper force by which they can reorient themselves in their position and find their way home. Now, what does that have to do with this passage? What it has to do with this passage is that the gospel is the call of God to draw us home. It is the call of God to come home. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to find us when we were lost, when we could not come home, when we would not come home. And many of us heard and responded to the gospel and believed in Christ and have repented and turned and are on our way home now. But we're not home yet. See, the gospel not only calls us home, but it is the gospel that keeps us on the path, keeps us from straying and becoming lost again. The gospel of Jesus Christ continues to empower and sustain us all the way home to our Christian faith. And so we must continually look to the gospel to strengthen us and help us to stay firm until the very end. These are the themes that Paul is speaking of in his introduction here. And in this introduction, he tells us three important things. Number one, he tells us what the gospel is. Number two, he tells us what the gospel does. And finally, number three, he tells us what we are to do with the gospel. Because it is the gospel that finds us and leads us all the way home. So let's look at point number one. What is this gospel? Paul has been commissioned by God. He is an apostle, a messenger to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. And Paul has been preaching the gospel throughout Eastern Europe and continues to move westward. He wants to go to Spain and to France to preach the gospel. And he seeks to make Rome his base for this next uh, uh, step of his missionary journey. And so Paul is writing the Romans a letter to make sure that they are grounded in the truth of the gospel. So when he gets there, there is a firm base upon which he can stand. And so Paul in Romans 1, 16 through 17, describes the gospel. In fact, Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the theme of the entire book of Romans. And in it, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Greeks. Now we have to ask the question, why would Paul be ashamed of the gospel, the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. Remember, the gospel is a story about a man who has been crucified by the Roman Empire. Paul is going around telling people that God himself, the God of the universe, came to earth, submitted himself to humiliating torture at the hands of the Romans to rescue you and me from sin. Now, to some people, this is absolutely ludicrous. 
I mean, crucifixion was considered the height of shame. To undergo crucifixion, it was the height of shame for a person. It was only for the most heinous of criminals. If you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't even be crucified, how, no matter how bad you were. It's for the lowest of the low, where your body would be tortured, humiliated. You would be hung on a cross naked. And after you died, your body would be left there so that vultures could come and pick apart your body in public view for all to see. It's like me coming in America and saying that the God that I worship came to earth and was um, uh, subjected to the electric chair so that I would not have to go to the electric chair because that is where I belong. Paul is saying that the temptation is not to even give that message because of how embarrassing it is. But Paul says, I'm, here is why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is, notice his words, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel itself is the power of God. This act of Jesus Christ and this message about this act is the most powerful thing in the universe. Now, there's only three places in the Bible where something is described as the power of God. There are plenty of times in the Bible where we see the power of God taking place, God using his power, but where actually something is described as the power of God. This is one place. The second is 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the, which I read earlier. For the word of, cro- of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here is the third place. But to those, 1 Corinthians 1.24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the only things ever called the power of God in the Bible are Jesus Christ and his gospel. God's power is seen in so many places, in erupting volcanoes, in the unimaginably hot boil of our massive sun, in a star streaking through the heavens at 1.5 million miles an hour. Yet in Scripture, such wonders are never, ever labeled the power of God. What is so powerful about the gospel? It is the power of God to accomplish salvation. And why does this require so much power? It is because the gospel brings salvation. It brings the dead to life. There's a massive difference between creating a human being and redeeming or saving a human being. In creating a human being, we remember in Genesis where God forms a human being from the dust of the earth and he breathes his spirit into him. And this man, this woman become alive. And God says it is very good. Mankind is the capstone of all creation. There is no higher being. Man is even higher than the angels. 
We see that man ultimately will judge angels and that man will inherit the kingdom of God. That is not something uh, given to angels. And why was man given, made in the image of God? Why was he given such power? He was given that because he was to be the representative of God, to rule over earth and ultimately over all of creation. And God said specifically to man, if you sin, you shall die. And when you think about it, there cannot be any other way, right? If man is to be the image of God, you cannot be in the image of God and simultaneously be a sinner. They're incompatible with one another. And so God's own law says the one who sins is the one who shall die. We know the story, right? Mankind sinned. He fell. And the Bible tells us that all of creation fell with him. That there is a corruption that has come into the world, indeed into the universe, because of the fall of man. Famine, pestilence, disease, corruption. These are all the effects of man's fall. But we see that to buy back someone from death, that's what redemption means. See, God cannot just cancel death. And he cannot just cancel punishment. God is always true to himself. So God may forgive sinners, but he never forgives sin. All sin at its core is a rebellion against the nature of God. All sin involves selfishness and hatred and lust and anger. And all sin must be paid for. And so to bring a human being back from death, someone must die in his place. But who is worthy to die? See, there's no one above man who can die in his place except for God himself. No creature below is enough, right? A lamb, a bull, an ox. The only one worthy to die is God himself. And so we see that the gospel is the power of God, verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed that God's son, Jesus Christ, paid the price that he came and lived an obedient life and suffered a brutal death on the cross that we might be redeemed. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus took the curse of death upon himself and gave us in its place his righteousness. Romans 8.1 tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are free from the punishment of sin and death. We are not moved from guilty to not guilty, but rather guilty to righteous because of the life of Jesus Christ. 
And this gift, this gospel, is appropriated by means of faith, by simply believing in the work of Jesus Christ. Not by our efforts, but rather by believing and trusting in the work of Christ. See, that's one of the reasons why it is the power of God. Because salvation has been accomplished through the most precious and difficult means necessary. But I also want to suggest to you that the righteousness, when he says the righteousness of God is revealed, he's talking about something else as well. That this phrase actually has a double meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed not just through what he has done, but because it reveals who he is. God reveals his character most fully in the gospel. That we can know what God is like at the core of his being by seeing how he has responded to the plight of humanity in the gospel. See, no other religion has ever claimed that its historical founder is the one and only supreme deity nor has any other religion ever dared to suggest that the one true God loves us enough to die for us. This is the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Because God is just, there had to be a payment for sin. But because God is love, he was willing to make the payment in the person of his own son. See, Jesus not only had to die for us to raise us, He wanted to die for us, to raise us. Romans 5, 6 puts it this way. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This picture of the love and justice of God is so greater, utterly greater than any other human being or any other God. In Hinduism, there is the notion of karma. If you do good things, you accrue good karma. And if you do bad things, you have bad karma and it follows you throughout your life. And so what Hope is there for somebody in a Hindu prison of a better life for them? The answer is none. In the Quran, in the Muslim faith, and I mean no disrespect, there are repeated promises of forgiveness of a compassionate and merciful Allah. But that forgiveness is only to those who merit forgiveness. Those whose actions have first been weighed in Allah's scales and found to be enough. Whereas the gospel is good news of mercy to the undeserving. The symbol of the religion of Jesus Christ is the cross, not the scales. I, uh, a couple years back, went to the Grand Canyon uh, with my family, and if you want to be inspired. If you want to see an awesome sight, go to the Grand Canyon. It opens your eyes to the vastness and wonder of something 
other than yourself. And so it is with the gospel. See, what you and I are starved for is the glory of God, not ourselves. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. Why do we go? Well, it's because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. What could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck called Earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? See, the gospel is like the Grand Canyon. It takes our eyes off of ourselves and onto a beautiful God, a compassionate and loving and gracious God. There's no greater power than the gospel. And there's nothing more powerful that can give us the life of God and show us the face of God. And so what you and I must do is make the gospel the greatest power in our life. To take our eyes off of ourselves and to say to Jesus Christ, I want to know you. To stare deeply through the gospel into the character of God. Because it is through the gospel that I can know what his heart is for me. And I can know what he is like. This one who would die for me. This one who is so just and at the same time so holy and forgiving. Every day, let us go to the cross and go to the empty tomb and gaze and marvel at this grand canyon of the gospel and Jesus Christ who made it all real. To honor the Lord is to believe and trust that what he has done is true. There's no greater response that you can give to Jesus Christ than to wholeheartedly embrace the gospel because he did it for you. So let us make it the foundation of our life because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls us all the way home. So look to the gospel to strengthen and help you stay firm to the very end. Well, if this is what the gospel is, let's talk about what the gospel does. The gospel calls us to life on this journey of faith, and it calls us home. Because we are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, but we are also in Virginia Beach. We live in a world of rebellion against God, a world of doubt If you drive down the street, if you turn on the internet, if you hear from your friends, you hear the message, put your faith in something else. You, a sinner that needs grace? No, no, no. The problem is that you have low self-esteem. Stop thinking this way. But the race, uh, Christian life, the Christian life is a race that is marked out for us. And the gospel continues to spur us on to help us keep the faith 
And Paul shows us here the importance of one another in helping us keep the gospel front and center. Notice notice what he says in verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. See, Paul wants to strengthen the Roman believers by providing a spiritual gift. And what is this spiritual gift? You see it in verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. But wait a second, Paul. I thought the gospel was for non-believers. The gospel most certainly is for non-believers. It calls people from death to life. But the gospel is for us as well because it keeps us on the path of life. Through preaching and teaching and encouraging and discipling. Remember how Jesus said to the apostles, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything to obey everything I have commanded you. Everything Jesus has commanded, communicated, is laced with the gospel. The gospel is more than simply John 3.16. In fact, most of the New Testament is the working out of the implications of the gospel and how it affects every aspect of my life. In the New Testament, the gospel is, uh, we see the gospel in, in the context of marriage, how the grace of Jesus Christ affects the way that I love my spouse, how the gospel enables me to lay down my life for him or her as Christ lays down his life for me. The gospel transforms my work. The grace of Jesus Christ enables me not to make work an idol, but rather an offering of praise. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms and shapes the difficulties in my life. The grace of Jesus Christ enables me to endure suffering, to trust in God when things seem hopeless to see life through an eternal perspective. And the reality, my friends, is that we need each other to help keep seeing the truth of how the gospel pervades and permeates every aspect of our life. All of us need encouragement from one another to remind and exhort one another. Notice that even Paul does. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's seen Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And yet he longs to see the Romans because he too needs encouragement from their faith as well. You know, one of the blessings I have in my life is I meet with three other men every week. We get together at Starbucks uh, one morning and they're all guys from different churches. We've known each other for a long time. We're all in a similar stage of life. And it's so good to sit down with them because when I hear them speak, I recognize that they are facing similar challenges and similar doubts. And we're able to listen and hear and speak into each other's lives and to encourage one another And every time I meet with them, I come away stronger. 
encouraged by how Christ is working in their life. I mean, that's really why we're here today, isn't it? Coming to hear the gospel on Sunday, to gather as God's people, so that we may be encouraged, so that we might peer deeply again into the Grand Canyon and see the beauty of God and his gospel in Jesus Christ. Paul sees this as a part and parcel of our journey as Christians. Notice Romans 1.13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. See, Paul is saying that there is a harvest to be reaped, not just with presenting the gospel to people who do not know the Lord, but a harvest to be reaped in helping one another to move further down the path of faith. And if Paul reaps a harvest that way, then so do we. Every encouragement that we have for one another, every prayer for one another, every sharing of how Christ is working in your life, the hard and the good, is in some measure strengthening our fellow brother and sister to continue to keep the faith. This is my pocket knife. It's, a, uh, it's uh, uh, by a company called Benchmade. And Benchmade is known as um, making some of the best pocket knives in the world. It's extremely expensive. I could never afford it. It was a gift from a friend of mine. And the reason it's so expensive is because of the process by which they uh, forge the blade, the heat treatment, and all the work that they do to make this blade strong so that it can handle anything that comes its way. But it's nowhere near as renowned as a type of steel called Damascus steel, which for 10 or 11 centuries was really the, the steel to have if you wanted a sword or an implement or so on. And what makes Damascus steel so special? What makes it special is that they take different types of steel, different alloys of steel, and they heat them up and then what they begin to do is they begin to sandwich them on top of each other. And then they let it cool. And then they hammer it again and flatten it out. And then they fold it over again and again and again. And these different types of steel, all steel, uh, because of the carbon and the irregularities, have, has brittleness in it. But when you layer these different types of steel and, and forge them together, each one makes up for the weaknesses of the other. And as they begin and become folded again and again, they become harder and stronger, almost indestructible. I love that picture because I think that is the picture of the church. God bringing you and me different types of steel, different alloys together, and pressing us together, my life coming up against your life, in community with one another, strengthening what is weak in each other, and becoming forged and folded together. We've become hardened and strengthened in more conviction 
and love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting, Damascus steel, it has a, it has a patina to it because of all the different alloys coming together that creates this beautiful wave that flows throughout the steel. See, the gospel continues to do its work in our lives. And the way it does its work, one of the most important ways is through each other. As we live life close to each other, coming alongside in our doubts and difficulties. If you are a Christian, you have a high and holy work. There is a harvest all around you. A call to preach the gospel to each other. You don't have to have a theology degree. You simply have a have to have a heart of love and a willingness to come alongside someone and say, here is what the Lord is teaching me. Or I was praying today for you. You can do this around the kitchen table with your kids, on a walk with a friend or a spouse, in our adult education time after the service, in a community group, a lighthouse group, a men's group, The gospel of Jesus Christ continues to call us all the way home. So play your part as we look to the gospel to strengthen us and help us stay firm to the end. And this brings me to my final point, what we do with the gospel. Notice what Paul says. He speaks of not only encouraging his fellow brothers in Christ and being encouraged by them, But he speaks of an obligation that he is under, verse 14, to the Greeks and to the barbarians, essentially the whole world, to preach the gospel. And what is this obligation to preach the gospel that Jesus Christ is the good news? You know, when we think of the word obligation, I think we often think of it in a bad way, right? I've got an obligation. I got to go to work on Monday. But I don't think Paul's speaking of it in that way. You ever notice in the Gospels when someone has an encounter with Jesus Christ, their first response is to go and tell someone about it? Good news by its very nature is something that wants to be shared. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not only merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is or to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. See, as we look into the gospel and experience the realities of the love and grace of Jesus Christ, our natural extension will be to tell someone else about it. 
Paul says, I'm under this obligation to preach the gospel to these other, these Gentiles. And so who is the obligation that you feel tugging on your heart that you want to tell about Jesus Christ? I just got my new competition shirts for pickleball. They have my uh, corporate sponsors, AGI, the Megalopolis, as well as Valer, who is my paddle sponsor as well. But something unique about these shirts is I have something else on the back. Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Now, I play pro tournaments, but, you know, I've never, ever seen on a pro jersey a church, right? You put your sponsor. So why have I put my church here? You know, by the way, this is a nice big target on my back, right? Because now every single person is looking at how I behave myself on the court. My life is the evidence that backs this up or tears this down. I do this because the obligation in my heart is I want my friends and people in the pickleball community to hear about Jesus Christ. You know, the logo doesn't mean anything if the life that accompanies it doesn't say anything. But it's an opportunity in that community to share the gospel of Jesus Christ for an opportunity. Now, each of us has our own community. Why do I want to do that? Because I love those guys. I love athletes. I love those type of people. I, I fit in with them. Who is it that you have a passion for? That you, God is calling you to wade into that community and to be Christ to them. Because what they need more than anything is to hear the good news of a God who loved them so much that he was willing to go to such lengths to seek to rescue them. What does all of this mean? It means that the gospel is the call to come home. Have you heard it? Have you responded to the love of God in Jesus Christ. If not, it's time to come home. That's the call of the gospel. And if you are on the journey home, the gospel continues to call us when we doubt, when we're discouraged. And he calls us through each other, encouraging one another. So let us encourage one another. And as we're on this journey, Seek to tell and communicate to others as well. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, when we were lost. When we could never find our way home. And through the cross, you call us, you woo us with your love. And you call us back to the family of God. God, may we hold heart uh, with all of our hearts to your gospel. May we gaze into the grand canyon of your grace. Use us, Lord, in one another's lives to continue to encourage each other on this race of faith. And may we gain an opportunity for a hearing with those around us to tell them a reason for the hope that is within us. All of this we pray. 
In Jesus Christ's name, amen.